to preach this week just about things that get in the way of our prayer life. So we're going to talk about barriers to prayer or barriers to answer prayer today. So we're going to be specifically focusing on unforgiveness and hypocrisy, barriers to answer prayer. So there's several things we could point to um, from the scripture about um, things that hinder our prayers, that get in the way of our prayer life, that, um, that you know, would, would be worthy of our focus. But I really feel like the Lord was just leading me to, to highlight these two points. And so I just want to say a very, very short prayer um, before we begin. Um, God, I thank you. Um, I thank you for every single soul that you've brought um, to Tebok here tonight. I thank you that we we came with expectant hearts, God, that we we expect God to encounter you um, and to have an intimate um, time just in your presence. And so I just pray, Lord, that we would be freer um, when we leave than when we came, um, that you would free people um, who already, as soon as I said the word unforgiveness or maybe even hypocrisy, might have felt their heart jump in their chest, God. But I thank you that Apostle Val gave the directive that you didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Um, and so, God, I, I pray that someone might experience your salvation today, not just from, you know, uh, from death into life and, you know, from hell to heaven, God, but that someone would be delivered to have their mind back, to have their heart back, to not be um, burdened or weighed down with a heavy weight. I mean, so I just pray um, freedom over this over this service in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. And so as I talked about, we've been focusing on prayer um, the whole whole semester and we're, we're going to keep that focus. Um, and I wanted to remind us that, you know, a big verse that we've talked about um, or verses that we focused on for the semester was first John 5, 14 and 15. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to kind of summarize it. Um, but about how we have whatever we ask of God according to his will, key point, and how that's you know a big thing, and we harped on that and what that means, what that implies, how that might shift the way we pray um, and the way we think about his will and the way we think about our prayers. But I want to present before us that praying according to his will isn't just what the literal words we use. You can have the right sounding words, but be outside of his will in your prayers. And so what does that look like? How could you be saying the right things but not be praying according to God's will? And so what I want to present to us is that there's a heart posture that comes from being in God's will that goes deeper than words. It goes deeper than honoring him with the things that we literally say. And it goes into what we really believe, what we really live out, what's really deep inside of us. And so in other words... From your mouth, from what you say, you might say things that sound really good. It might seem like you're very intimate with God. You may have been in church for a while. You may have picked up a lot of lingo. You know how to get a crowd stirred when you're, when you're praying. You know how to say the right things and make people, you know, get really excited. But you could have a heart that's distant from it. And so Isaiah 29, 13, for example, um, I'll just read it to you. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll let us know in a second when we can kind of just open it up. But from the NIV, the Lord says, these people come to me, come near to me, excuse me, with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. And so we see not only can um, we say the right things and be far from God, like this verse very clearly suggests, but it affects our worship. You know, we, we can be worshiping from the wrong heart posture. It affects you know, the way that we pray, we, we really aren't praying sometimes when we say the right words, but our hearts are far from him. And so the question is, how do we know if our heart is far from him? How do we know? Like if we're if you and me are both saying the same thing in prayer, it sounds good enough. But one of us could be completely distant in an intimate moment with God and one of us could be present with him in that moment. And so, you know, we may not even know that our heart is far from him. And that's something I just want us to, to think about is like, you may feel spiritual enough. You may feel like you're good. You may feel like you're well off, but, and you might, you might not be backslidden. You might not, you know, um, be doing the wrong things. You might be consistent in your word. You might be consistent, have the Christian disciplines down and things like that. But as we see in this verse, there, there's something deeper than words. There's something deeper than just doing things legalistically that you've been taught, just doing them just because you know you're supposed to do them. And so, 
what I'm going to just talk about is just how these barriers to seeing um, prayers answered come from deep rooted heart issues. And so, like I already you know, told us, the two barriers that we're going to focus on today out of the many that we could focus on are going to be unforgiveness and hypocrisy. And so both of these are barriers that grieve the Holy Spirit and hinder both our prayers and our worship, whether we realize it or not. So if everyone could turn for me to Ephesians 4.26, we're going to read Ephesians 4.26 through 32. I can read that for us. I'll just let everyone turn there. I'm just going to tie my shoe. Ephesians 4, 26 through 32. Yeah, so we're going to talk about grieving the Holy Spirit with unwholesome talk, anger, and unforgiveness. Ephesians 4, 26 through 32. And like I said, I'll read it for us. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others, for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And so um, of crucial importance is just knowing the book of Ephesians, it's it's written to to the church. Um, And so just having that context is helpful as we read these things about anger, unforgiveness, giving the devil a foothold, um, different things like that. I just want us to keep that in mind. And so the first point that I want us to to get from this, sorry, is in verses 26 and 27, and how we see in these verses how holding on to anger in our hearts provides the devil a foothold. So what's this foothold? I know different translations may say different things in slightly different ways, but what this foothold is getting to is the access that Satan gains to our hearts through the open door of anger. Through the open door of, you know, whatever your specific version might say that's similar. But he's gaining access to our hearts in ways that he otherwise wouldn't have been able to when we hold on to bitterness, to anger, offense. And it's, it's we're, we're giving him that open door, a window into our hearts to be influenced by him. And so when we're choosing to cling to anger, when we're choosing to cling to offense, when we're choosing to cling to, cling to unforgiveness and these different things, we're, and we're not having the heart posture of quick reconciliation or letting go, we're, we're giving him that permission. That's kind of what verses 26 and 27 are getting into, specifically with anger. And so in verses um, 29 and 30, we can see how unwholesome talk And anger is the context for the primary ways we grieve or we bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit. Unwholesome talk and anger, the primary ways that we're grieving the Holy Spirit. And so we we know the Holy Spirit is God, hopefully. Um, And he's a person. He has a mind, a will, emotions. And so that's important to know if we're saying we can grieve the Holy Spirit The Holy Spirit has feelings like he can be affected by the things that we do, the way that we live. That's important for us to know because of how often, you know, the Holy Spirit's ministry and who he is gets neglected within the church oftentimes. And so our bodies are the Holy Spirit's temple in which he dwells. So when we hold hate in our hearts, anger, unforgiveness, we're subjecting him and his temple, his dwelling place, which is our bodies to sinfulness, which is completely contrary to his nature. It defiles his name and his dwelling place. 
And so, you know, if we even think of an example of, you know, some of you who may be more familiar with the Old Testament where you've seen the very strict, you know, rules and regulations that had to be followed in the temple, in the tabernacle to be in the Holy of Holies. And you couldn't even have, you know, some of the most basic like things we wouldn't even think about as unholy or as unclean in there. Or you could die. Like if you're a priest who handles things incorrectly, you would die on the spot. You know, being in the Holy of Holies and, you know, moving from the outer courts going in. And so we have to remember when there's a context that's there when the Bible is talking about like our bodies being a temple, like being the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Like that temple that was on the external that you had to go to, that abides in us in a new and living way. But the Holy Spirit abides in us. He resides in us. And he's a person, so he gets affected by the way we live, the things we hold on to. And so what I want us to see is that it's not just that grieving the Holy Spirit in this way with like anger, holding on to offense, holding on to unforgiveness, um, offends him or grieves him, but it affects us. We can't have the Holy Spirit living in us with his will, emotions, you know, where we're walking with him, we're walking by the Spirit and think we just won't be affected negatively. If the Holy Spirit in us is getting negatively affected by these things we're holding on to, we're not removed from the consequences or the, the effects of that. And so, you know, by nature of him dwelling in us, our ability to find enjoyment and pleasure with God internally gets hindered because we cause the one who's called our comforter to live in discomfort, distress and sorrow. We've made the place of the comforter a place of discomfort. We've made a dwelling place, a place where we don't even feel safe in. Where when we, you know, just get alone with ourselves and we're just alone in prayer, we might be thinking about that thing we can't, you know, just seem to shake. We're holding on to that bitterness, holding on to unforgiveness. And we don't even have a dwelling place to ourselves. He's affected and we're affected. And so I just want us to know that we aren't just neutral. Like we're not just neutral or unaffected when we grieve the Holy Spirit. It's not just like a constant say, oh, you know, he's just feeling it, but like, I'm cool or like, I'm just doing whatever. But but you're, you're affected um, whether, you know, the extent you realize it or not, um, or you can attribute to how he's feeling with how you're feeling, but you're affected. And so maybe our distress and sorrow that we feel that we don't share with others, um, that we don't talk to others about is because the Holy Spirit's allowing us to feel what he feels. Could it be that the offense, the unforgiveness, the bitterness, whatever it is that we're holding on to, which is really for self-preservation, if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of the time we want to keep ourselves safe. It's actually killing you. It's stripping away your supernatural comfort. And it's stripping away your joy while you think you're saving it. And so while we think we're doing this honorable thing, we're protecting ourselves, we know that thing hurts us a lot. It, you know, and you don't even have to think about super traumatic things. I know sometimes we want to hop there, but some of you might have unforgiveness in your heart from a spouse, from a girlfriend, from, it could be from a, a teacher, from a parent, you know, it could be anything. And God doesn't want us to hold on to that. He doesn't want us to live in bitterness and holding things against one another, whether they're Christians, whether they're not Christians. He does not want us to grieve the Holy Spirit in the way we talk about people or the way that we express anger. We, we don't want to give a foothold to the devil and have an opportunity to be influenced into sin. And so in verses 31 and 32, especially, we're commanded to get rid of bitterness and anger and slant. Commanded, get rid of it. And instead, we're not just given a command to just get rid of it and just be, you know, okay, I just drop it and I get, but we're told to replace it with something. So we're called to demonstrate in place of anger, bitterness, slander, all these different things, replace it with compassion and forgiveness. Interesting. So instead of anger, compassion and forgiveness, out of all the things he could have said, compassion and forgiveness. And so this, you know, keeping in track what we talked about at the beginning, this specifically, taking on this heart posture of compassion and forgiveness, getting rid of bitterness and anger and all of those things, that's affecting the way we speak. So we talked about unwholesome talk and, you know, switching that the way we speak is affected. But like I mentioned from the start, there's a deeper thing at work 
where we have to have a change at the heart level. We can't just change our words and then leave our hearts just as heavy and weighed down and as offended and bitter and then just expect that, you know, everything will just be okay. You know, things will just change. If I just speak differently, you know, things will just be different. But we're called to change both ways, speaking and our heart posture. And so, yeah, I just want us to know, too, I know forgiveness can get really hard. I know people think about very different things. Some of you, you might be thinking about deep-seated childhood stuff. Some of you are just thinking about an argument you may have had with a friend. You might be thinking about something you were upset at God with that you really haven't let him go or let him off the hook from in your heart. And so there's a wide range of things, but I want us to know that our forgiveness isn't on the basis of just letting people get away with things. Jesus, it's not just on the basis of letting people get away with things, but it's on the basis of the goodness of God. We're basing our forgiveness on how good he is, on his character, his attributes. And so he forgave us when we hated him, when we were dead in our sin, when we couldn't do anything like A.V. was saying. And we sinned against him without any thought of him, the sinless, perfect one, the holy one, perfectly good one. And he still chose to love us and to show compassion and offer us forgiveness. And so I want us to dive a little bit deeper into unforgiveness. So if we could all turn to Matthew 5, 21 through 26. And again, I can just read it for us just for the sake of time. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. And again, sorry, I hear people turning. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with the brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be danger in the fire of hell. Therefore, Jesus, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary um, who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So this is heavy, heavy, heavy. This, This section of scripture will completely change how you think about grieving the Holy Spirit that we just read. When you start to see how God sees anger in our hearts versus how we see it, how he associates it with murder, whereas we think it's, you know, a little ticky tacky thing, you know, it's just a little bit of, you know, I have a right to be angry about things, you know, you know, we'll find all types of justifications for whatever type of anger we're holding on to whatever bitterness. And a lot of times it's, it's legitimate wrongs, but especially on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus is demonstrating what the standard of the world is, the standard of the church, you know, was or the Jewish community at the time. And he's showing them what the kingdom of heaven looks like, what his value system looks like, what is the fulfillment of all those things versus what we thought was right, what we thought was good enough, what we thought was the standard we should be living by. And he radically shifts it and he invites us into that. And so, excuse me. And so, like I said, um, angers or anger of others is on the level of murder in his kingdom or is associated with it. And so um, it's, it's not just a little attitude that we hold, like when we're grieving him and we're allowing the foothold, uh, we're giving the devil a foothold to anger. I mean, it even gives context to that, like giving the devil a foothold just from, you know, not letting, um, you know, or staying in anger before the sun goes down and things like that, not being quick to reconcile these issues that are in my heart that are weighing me down. 
you know, once you start to see the spiritual implications and how God looks at this and how the kingdom it's defined, you start to see, wow, this is this is a lot more serious in his eyes. Maybe I need to consider what I'm holding on to a little bit more closely. And so whereas we're looking to our definitions to excuse our thoughts, to excuse, um, you know, the perspectives that we have that go against God's wisdom, God has the perfect definition. He has the perfect perspective and he knows the true nature of things. He's God. He sees all. He knows all. He's the creator. He understands the way we feel. He understands what was done to us and he sees what we, we don't see. And he understands our sinfulness better than we do. And so because he knows the true nature of things like unforgiveness and bitterness or hatred that we try to justify according to human standards, or that's because he, um, you know, he does know those things deeply. And so we talked about strongholds um, a couple weeks ago, I believe it was now, um, a couple weeks ago. And we talked about how there are these, um, we talked about how the strongholds are in the mind. And we talked about, you know, the high and lofty things and, um, you know, that we have weapons of our warfare that aren't carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down these strongholds. And we talked about, um, you know, all, all of those types of things. And so following that, we see, again, these thought systems we have. Jesus is completely correcting like stronghold types, uh, thought systems and thought patterns we have about the validity of our anger, justifying the way that we feel in terms of offense, bitterness, not wanting to reconcile, being wronged. And so he's coming against these strongholds with the truth of his word, with himself. And he's showing us that you need to tear that thing down. That the way you've been talking to yourself about the hurt that you've gone through, the trauma you've experienced, that the, the argument you got into that you can't let go, whatever it is, it's exalting itself against me. It's murderous. It's killing you. It's not good for you. Will you allow me to touch that thing? Will you believe my word that says that it needs to be pulled down? And so that's that's what that's what we're doing here. That's what we're talking about is that there are ways of thinking that we have that we might justify, that we might follow our own definition for. And God's saying, will you believe my definition? Will you believe my word? Will you allow me to correct that thing with my truth? Will you pray into it from my will? And this is where, where we get into it deeper. Will you, yeah, you're saying words well enough, but will your heart allow this now that you know? You who came in thinking like, oh yeah, you know, whatever. I can, you know, I pray about forgiveness and stuff like that. Will you allow me to touch your heart? Will you let me show you what it's gonna cost for you to forgive? Will, will you let me show you like deeply in your heart that your anger isn't good? It's not justified, though you were greatly sinned against. It's not. And that's the hard part where it's hard to move from head to heart is like, how could something be a justifiable wrong against me? But it's not right for me to respond with anger. And this is where the casting down of strongholds has to happen through the truth of God's word, through intentional prayer, through meditating on these things through diving deeper with God. Like some of you, you might not have even really thought about this before. And this is God's invitation for you to dive deeper into his word with him. Dive deeper into prayer, shed some tears, get broken a little bit before his presence to just to make sense of these things. He's not afraid of those intimate moments with you and having those tough questions and even hearing maybe accusations. He's a faithful father. Thank you, Jesus. And so... Again, we're focusing on the heart. We, we're focusing on the words as well. And so this passage of scripture addresses words of contempt um, or, or hatred towards another and how that's subject to judgment. You know, we see the you fool, the raka comment, if I'm pronouncing it rightly. <laughs> um, but we also see it reminds me of a verse in James 3, um, 9 through 10. Um, you don't have to turn to it. But how with our tongues we can praise God, but curse humans. And this should not be so. And so just the heart posture that God has for, you know, when when he's saying like we, we shouldn't have these words of contempt or hatred for one another. It's because the same mouth we're using to say these things about people. So if you, even if you're saying it in your heart, like God is ta like Jesus takes the standard that he's bringing with the kingdom of heaven deeper than words you express outwardly. But the cry of your heart might even be, you know, unwholesome talk in, you know, speech that's not beneficial. And so we praise God. We praise God with our mouth. 
but we curse our enemies with our mouth. And God is trying to shift that. He's trying to take us into a place where there aren't contradictions. There isn't hypocrisy coming forth from our mouths. And so unresolved conflict or lack of reconciliation hinders our worship. Like I just said with James, we praise God with our mouths. We, you know, this section of scripture is talking about the offerings that we bring, the gifts that we want to leave at the altar. And while we get so eager sometimes to be in his presence or like, you know, use our gifts or to, you know, offer him something or we get really, there's times where we haven't even noticed it. We may have even ignored God where there was a moment of conviction you might have felt where you knew you were holding some type of unforgiveness, lack of reconciliation, anger, bitterness, offense. And God's like, I know you want to come into my presence. That's great. But pause first, be reconciled first, get to that place of forgiveness first, release the bitterness that you're holding towards that person, release that anger that you're carrying, release it first and then come back to me, then bring your gift. And so that type of stuff hinders our worship. God will tell us to put pause on our worship. What we think is the most important thing. Like, oh no, God, we just need to worship first. We need to give you the gift first. And then, you know, we can work on the reconciliation and the other stuff. And God's like, no, that's not my standard. This is the way I want you to do things. I don't want you to try to offer praise to me while you can't even, you know, love your neighbor well. Because that's ultimately what we're talking about here. And so we really begin to understand God's heart. Again, I'll give another scripture that we don't have to turn to, but um, you could just mark it down for your notes. Hosea 6, 6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And so in Hosea, whether it's in Matthew, whether it's in James, we see that God desires hearts full of forgiveness, mercy, without hypocrisy. He's not interested in what we can give him when it's out of his order. <laughs> He's interested in your gift. He's interested in the offering, but in his order. It's the same thing with the tabernacle, the same thing in the temple. If you tried to give him the same gift you know, you could have um, been trying to offer him one of the, you know, temple sacrifices or stuff. But if you gave him a burnt offering and the requirements for that, when he's asking for a drink offering, you're out of order and he's disgusted. But if when he's requiring the, you know, the burnt offering, you give what's required for a burnt offering, he's pleased. And so we kind of have that heart posture sometime where it's like, oh, I know what that scripture might say, but like, you know, is it really ever a bad time to like worship or just go before you, God, or just get, you know, just to do these things, to pour out my gifts before your altar, to just lay everything? And he's like, yes, <laughs> yes, there is. I am still the God of order. You're in the law of grace. You're in the law of freedom, but I'm still a God of order. I'm still the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so that's what he's inviting us into. And even in verse 26, I'll just skim over it quick, but, you know, and he wants us to settle these things quickly. It's not like he's telling us like, oh, go on this deep, you know, deep rooted journey. You know, for some of us, it may be, but like, he's saying like, settle these matters quickly. It's not like he just wants to push off the offering or whatever, the sacrifice at the altar forever, your worship, your prayers. But he's saying, settle it quickly for all the reasons we mentioned, grieving the spirit, what it does to you internally. But also he, desi he desires that, un you know, that pure worship, that true spiritual worship. And that's where we're getting at the heart posture with him. And so um, you might not even have to flip a page for this next verse, but we're going to look at Matthew 5, 43 through 48. And we're going to talk a little bit about loving our enemies because unforgiveness and some of these other things, there's a lot of overlap with just loving our enemies and seeing what God's heart really is, what God's standard really is, what you know his opinion really is about how we navigate relationships and hurt and pain that we carry. And so Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And so if we want to know 
God's standard more in depth. We want to know how God views how we should treat people who have genuinely wronged us, who we might have hurt in our heart against, who we might go as far to consider them enemies or just against us, adversaries, whatever word you want to put on it. God, who's had the greatest wrongs done by him, done to him by humanity, he still makes the sunshine and the rain come on the evil and the good. He, he does good. He has common grace for unbeliever and believer alike. He still pours out blessing. Now, he still, obviously, we know, says very clear things about, you know, those who are his and those who aren't his. And we know all of those things. But in general, what he's showing here is his love is unconditional. He loved us while we were still enemies. He died for us while we were still in sin. And so that's the type of standard that he's trying to set for us. And so if we want to identify as God's children, like it says here, we must love according to God's definition and not our own. And that's what I'm really trying to get us to is that God has a definition. God has a way of thinking. He has a way of us understanding and going about the world. He has a way that works. He knows us. He created us. He created us to function a certain way to be in fellowship with him, like A.V. said, to be in communication, to have a certain type of impact on the world that's around us that he's given us dominion over. And what we end up doing when we follow our own definitions is we put ourselves in the place of God. And we say, I hear that, but I think I know what's best for my heart. I think I know what I need in this season. And you might even venture over into saying, God told you to do what you're doing (laughs) because you don't really know his voice in that area, in that area on that topic, the way he really thinks. And you may have let a stronghold way of thinking or the way that you feel distort what God really says. And so we're unveiling that lie of the enemy today. And so, whereas God's definition of love calls for self-sacrifice and denial of self and laying down our lives, the human definition of love often calls for self-preservation and loving our lives above all else, protecting our lives at any cost. But we know in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous chapter about love, God's definition includes things like keeping no records of wrong, not being self-seeking, not being proud, not being easily angered, being patient. And so the mere fact that we have, um, you know, the mere fact that we have people that we can consider enemies or that we have offense against or that, you know, wrong stuff has happened to us is in some ways a good thing. It gives us a unique opportunity. And I know it might, might not feel like that. So, you know, just just hear what I'm saying is the fact that we have, you know, these enemies and or we have some people that we might be holding something against in our hearts. We actually have a unique invitation to love as Jesus did or does and as the father desires Someone needs to grab hold of that. You have a unique invitation. And this is part of once you have a perspective shift, once you start to come under like submitting to God, resisting the devil, seeing even those demonic stronghold thoughts and stuff like that flee from you. Like you'll start to see even people you have issues with as a unique invitation to love better. As like, wow, I really if I was really like just cool with everybody I want to really be able to enter into this type of love that you're telling me I need to be entering into, Lord. And so not just loving people in our place of comfort and preference like the world does, like it says, like tax collectors, or for some of you, it might say sinners in your Bible. But loving those who have deeply wronged us. And again, by God's definition, not just letting people get away with it. But there is a release that's going to happen when there's forgiveness. There is something that you are going to have to let go of in some ways. But again, even letting go isn't according to the standard of the world. So that's what I want us to understand is like we'll take partially a God definition, partially a world definition and like come up with these weird views of what we're really called to be doing while we're in the faith. And so we just need to be God conscious about what does God say about this? And so our love really can't be refined. It can't be made it can't be matured or like it says in uh, verse 48, made perfect. It's talking about being matured and refined. And so we're in those relationships or situations with people who might be difficult to love. And so we're going to quickly turn to this one. We won't spend forever on it, but we're going to turn to 1 John four nineteen through 21.
So 1 John 4, 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have, whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And so again, we're, we're just, we're unpacking what God's definition of unforgiveness is, of what his definition of love is, what holding on to things looks like, what, how that affects us and all these different things. And so we even see how the quality of our love is hindered when we're holding hate, unforgiveness, bitterness, offense in our hearts that we think is preserving us and saving our lives. God says we cannot love him and not love our neighbor rightly. We can't love him and hold hate in our hearts for other people. We can't do it. It's incompatible with his nature. He's telling you what he thinks. He's telling you the way things are. So the question we have is, will we come into agreement with it? Will we align with it? Will we believe what our, what our bodies feel, the hurt that we feel? Will we let God touch it? Because he's not just telling you to do something and then leave you to do it by yourself, but he's giving you his spirit. He's promised you his presence. He'll help you forgive. He'll help you let that thing go. He'll be with you through the tears that you need to shed. He'll fill you. He'll give you the capacity to love and to do the things according to his word. So you're not just alone trying to strive for this thing that you really don't want to do. He'll give you the desires to want to do it once you start to submit. And even if it's hard, he's with you. And so we have to choose to love others who are our enemies because God loved us while we were his. We already talked about that a little bit. But I just want us to see how incompatible it is to say we love God according to him. To say that we love God and hold hatred and contempt in our hearts is completely incompatible with God. So he's not going to allow for hypocrisy to taint the demonstration of his love. We represent God to the world, so he can't stand when believers talk, take his name in vain. Is essentially what's happening is taking his name in vain by not showing compassion and concern for the rest of humanity, not showing the mercy that we've received towards others. And so that's the deep call that we're called into. You know, following him comes at a cost. It comes at laying down our lives. And so the, the last scripture that we're really going to park out in um, for the rest of the, uh, our time together is going to be Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And we're going to keep talking about this unforgiveness, but we're going to start talking about hypocrisy a little bit more. And so Matthew 18, 21 through 35, probably headed in most of your Bibles, something like the parable of the unmerciful servant or, you know, something alike. And even while people are turning there, I'll just start reading since it's a little bit bigger of a chunk of scripture. Um, but then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle the accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. And I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until, the, until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. 
Interesting. So let's just go, go back to the start and we'll work our way through. So Jesus in verse 22, when he's responding to Peter, who's asking him kind of the, the, you know, kind of religious basic question of like, you know, how often should I really forgive someone? Like if they've kept wronging me, you know, seven times, you know, sounds like a lot. <laughs> someone keeps doing you wrong and you're supposed to forgive them seven times. It probably sounded like a lot to him. But Jesus responds in a way that is just according to his character. And so we read um, Jesus saying in verse 22 that I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. He doesn't mean there's just a higher quota that you have to hit that once that person hits 77 times of wronging you, you know, then you're, you're cool to be unfor- <laughs> you're cool to be unmerciful and unforgiving. But what he's showing is that we don't have a quota on forgiveness. There is no quota on forgiveness that we can hit or reach because his forgiveness has no quota. Remember, all of this is unto the character and the goodness of God. We should find it a wonderful thing that God has no quota, that he's telling Peter, yeah, unlimited times is essentially what he's saying, is because that's his heart for us. And so he's not telling us something that he doesn't, that he doesn't abide in, that isn't true to himself. And so, excuse me. In verse 23, we see something else that's really, really important about this section, um, this passage of scripture in terms of mercy and how God wants us to live this out. We see that the king and obviously, you know, the parallel, God is the king, servants us. You know, I'm pretty sure we could all see that. But the king wanted to wanted to demonstrate mercy towards a servant. He was desiring to pour out his mercy. He was desiring to express it. Verse 23 says that the king who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. And so while we're talking about mercy, I guess I should probably give an explanation of what what we're talking about. So you could think about mercy and grace as kind of like similar, but a little bit different. And so with mercy, we're thinking about not giving someone a punishment that is deserved. Whereas with grace, we're thinking about giving someone a gift or giving something freely that they don't deserve. So grace, you're giving something freely. Mercy, you're not giving a punishment typically to someone that is deserving of that punishment. And so God or the king in this example, God is desiring to pour out his mercy to those who owe him insurmountable debts, unbelievable debts. Like if I just explain a little bit, that that debt that that servant owed was between 70 to 100 million days wages for uh, for a peasant at that time. That is it's like the equivalent. I, I looked it up. It was like 100 million dollars um, that this a servant like just a servant owes a king. How do you even rack up that much debt? That's a, that's the point. Um, there was such an extreme debt owed and it's to symbolize the unbelievable amount of wrongdoing we've done towards God. That we, you know, we might know like, oh, yeah, I was dead in my sin. I sinned against God. But like, we don't really think about how wrong our sin was against God. Like how in like how immeasurable God is, how pure he is and how pure he is and how even the littlest sin is far greater even than this like a hundred million dollar sum that that this uh, that this servant owed. And so but besides just the money amount, like a king desiring to be merciful to like a servant like you have the different status positions, like he's literally the king. What, why would you even mess around like trying to forgive a servant? Just punish him, do, do whatever, do what you want. But still he desires to show mercy. And so again, we already talked about Hosea 6.6. 6. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. Acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And so, um, excuse me. So it's amazing when we think about God knows exactly how much and how great our sin against him is. But he still remains eager to demonstrate the riches of his mercy and his patience towards us. So while the king knows that the servant could never pay back such a debt, he knows he's asking him about paying it back. The king knows the servant has no chance. There's no way. I even saw another statistic on like kind of this section of scripture where it's like, the amount of money he owed the king was more than like any type of small kingdom in Jesus's day even had in circulation. So it was like more money than even existed as available to the people. So there was just no way. And so while the king um, knows that the servant could never pay back such a debt, 
in this culture that valued honor very, very heavily, showing mercy would at least bring honor to the king's reputation. And so even let's make it personal for us. When God pours out his mercy and he gets to demonstrate his mercy on the undeserving, it brings honor to his name. It brings glory to his name. When people who aren't deserving of something like we were receive his mercy, receive forgiveness, are brought into his family, he gets honor and credit and esteem and praise and worship to his name because he's that good. That It doesn't even make sense that you would do that, God, but you did. And so we praise, we worship, we, we imitate you from that place. And so he is, what we need to know is that he's more rich in mercy than we are in debt to him. As insurmountable as the amount of money this servant owed the king, somehow, some way, who knows how, his mercy is richer than our sin. His mercy is richer than the debt that we owe him. That's why Jesus is the one for all sacrifice. He, he is enough. He is sufficient. His blood is enough to cover every sin. Just think about that. We're talking about one servant, this more debt than even money in circulation against the king. Imagine all the servants. You get everyone's sin added up or everyone's debt added up. How you can't even like fathom how much that would be, how much debt that would be against the king. But for each and every servant, he's desiring to settle accounts. He wants to have to have our sins forgiven, to have our debt forgiven. And so we see the hypocrisy come in after the servant has been forgiven, even after he knows he can't pay back the debt and he's lying and telling the king, like, he'll pay it back. He's begging, he's getting to that desperate place. But as soon as he receives his forgiveness, he receives his mercy, we see hypocrisy immediately jumping immediately starts to choke the other servant. He's demanding the payment. He's acting completely contrary to the king who just gave him forgiveness, who just gave him mercy. And he's acting in the complete opposite way as if he looked in a mirror, dimly lit, (laughs) walked away, not even remembering what he looked like. That's a scripture. Some of you are wondering what um, I'm quoting. So he immediately had that great forgiveness and mercy uh, that was shown towards him. And he immediately forgets all about that and treats this other servant wickedly. And so even the debt that this other servant owed him was, it was like one millionth of a debt, literally one millionth of a debt less than what he had owed to the king, the wicked servant. And so just like the wicked servant through hypocrisy, unforgiveness, and just like the uh, wicked servant through hypocrisy, unforgiveness, offense, bitterness, we put people in prison in our hearts where they aren't able to repay their debt. And we end up robbing the king of more opportunities to demonstrate the richness of his mercy. What the king desires is to pour out his mercy. And so what the wicked servant is doing is he's pouring out his own version of justice and judgment on the servant, not according to the king's standard. And he's actually robbing the king of honor and glory and richness in the display of his power and of his goodness. And so what can you give a God who has everything? What can you give a king who has everything? He says, I desire mercy. You can give him mercy. You've been wondering what gift you can bring to the altar. He says, bring me mercy before you bring me sacrifice. Bring me mercy. And so just in keeping up with our time in verse 30, we even see that the other people, that there's other people who are watching. They're watching how the wicked servant is treating this other servant. And they've seen the great forgiveness that the first servant received from the king. And so they watch how the servant who received mercy demonstrates this mercy to others. And so when the other servants saw this instance of hypocrisy, they were outraged and disgusted. And there's a whole bunch of ways we could see this today how our hypocrisy is responded to as servants. So even now, if we look at unbelievers, for example, if we look outside of the church, how the biggest complaint typically with the Christian church, you know, whether sometimes maybe unfairly, a lot of times very rightly, is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy of religious people. And even with the hypocrisy in the church, it made me think about Romans 2.24. Again, don't have to turn there, but if you want to mark it down. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so the context for Romans 2 is that 
Paul is talking about the, the Jews or the Pharisees and how they're living in such hypocrisy that they have all these high standards, all these high ways of living that they don't even keep themselves. And he's saying that when you hold this high standard and you don't even live by it, when you say that you've received these things from God and you don't even follow them, you actually blaspheme my name. You ruin what my name means to people who are watching. You bring outrage and disgust when you live hypocritically. And you bring that. And so we, we need to put ourselves in the story sometimes and think about ways that we live hypocritically in light of the great mercy that we've received and who's watching. Who have you distorted their view of who God is because you lived hypocritically? Because you treated them contrary to the mercy that God had shown them. What witness was killed? What moment do you wish you had back? And so our unwillingness to forgive or to reconcile, to show mercy, is evidence that we're taking the Lord's name in vain. We're misrepresenting his character to others. And we're misrepresenting his power to, be, to, to, to transform. And so once we bear the name of a Christian, we begin to represent God, whether we like it or not, whether we, we try to hide it or not. Once we bear the name of Christian and people know, we begin to define God. Again, whether we think it's fair or not, people who aren't believers, I mean, even other people in the church, think about so many of us in this room, Christians, you've seen some other Christian fall away or just live wrong. And you start seeing like, God, how are they blessed in this way? They're gifted in this way. But like, and you, it just stirs up like strife, like just ill thoughts, like in your mind, like, how could this be like, this just isn't right. Like, how could that, you know, but especially outside of the church is what I, I just wanted to focus on. Because people look at us and they won't open a Bible. They won't, you know, maybe they'll stop and listen to us if we evangelize to them. Um, but they'll look at our lives. They'll look at our character. They'll look at how we treat others, what we say the quality of our love is versus what we actually live like. And they'll make judgment about who God is. It won't even just be us. They'll be like, why would I follow that God? Christians are like this. I mean, I'm sure all of you have heard it. Like, yeah, Christians are hypocritical or like, yeah, Christians think this way. So, I mean, that's just what their God is like. Why would I want to follow that God? And, you know, we know, I'm sure everyone could think of ways that's been unfairly used against them. But there's a lot of ways that it's justified. Like we actually do carry his glory. Like we can actually taint the image of his glory to other people because whether they know it or not, they're looking for the light. They're looking for the light of the world. They're looking for us. They're looking for an example that we set, that we would reveal God to them. Because, what's the scripture say that I'm thinking about? But the fool says there is no God. And you know, every, Romans talks about how everyone knows that there's a God, that his divine attributes, his power, creation testifies to it. And so there's that part of people that wants to believe in God, that wants to know him, that wants to, you know, wants him to be real. But then you get hypocrisy, lovelessness, hatred, bitterness, offense, you know, living in sin, you know, that's kind of going off topic, different things like that, living contrary to this good God that Christians proclaim, and it completely destroys and disgusts and outrages, literally outrages and disgusts the world to us. And so, you know, not just for our internal life, and I know I'm going off the real a little bit, um, and how it hinders our prayer and our worship and it's killing us and all these things and grieves the spirit, but it affects those around us. Like the, the stuff you hold in is going to come out eventually and people are going to see it. It's, it's inevitable. This is why God's trying to free it from us first so that we don't have to get to this place. Like we aren't beyond getting to what, you know, this, this servant did. Who know who's to say the this wicked servant in his heart wasn't like, Oh, I'm not being wicked. I'm just trying to make, you know, I'm trying to add to the forgiveness and the mercy that was demonstrated to me. You know, the king forgave me. So let me shake out some extra money for my servants. I'll at least give him something, you know, in his mind, he could have been justified. We don't know. It's a it's a parable. (laughs) But, you know, who knows? You know, in his mind, he could have been, you know, justified for using a little bit of force or adding a little bit. But again, it's what our definitions are versus what God's definition is for these things. And so, yeah, yeah, I wanted to add this point too. And so even worse sometimes than people thinking we're hypocrites is what would happen if they didn't think you were a hypocrite, but they started to agree with your misrepresentation of God, Jesus. 
Jesus. Imagine they don't just respond with disgust or outrage, but they join in with you like, hey, you mean I can follow God and I can be unforgiving, I can be unmerciful, I can still be hating, I can still do those things, and he'll still accept me? He'll still, he'll still like, I can live contrary to him and, you know, still go to heaven? I don't think that's bad at all. I think that's a, a good deal. Like, people, that's the scarier part, is you aren't seen as a hypocrite, but you're seen as righteous. <laughs> you're seen as doing the right thing, living the right way, and you're justifying someone else's bitterness. You're, you're, the way you're living and the way you're acting draws them into what you have to offer in the wrong way. And what they see in you in the wrong way. And so that's another reason we need to be careful about what we're holding on to in our hearts. Even though it feels justified. Even though that pain is real. Even though injustice was done against you. And so that's why 1 John 4 talked about um, it being incompatible with God's nature. And impossible to truly love him while holding this contempt and hatred in his heart. We see it. It's, It's that type of representation of God that grieves the Holy Spirit. And so... Excuse me. So, yeah, every time we're holding anger and offense and unforgiveness in our hearts towards someone, we're living in that place of the hypocritical servant. And so we may think it's, you know, our offense or bitterness is justified because we have often had very, very legitimate wrongs. Like some of y'all have lived through a lot. Y'all, some of y'all have lived through a lifetime of suffering. Some of you have lived through a lot of hurt, a lot of betrayal. Just a lot of a lot of deep wrongs, you know, maybe by parents, friends, family. Maybe you've been inappropriately touched. Maybe you've had mental, emotional, physical abuse. Maybe you've had betrayal, cheated on, lied to, stolen from, you know, whatever it is. And you've lived through a lot of trauma and hurt maybe as a consequence. Maybe your examples are a lot on a smaller scale, but you're still carrying it with you and it's affecting you. And so I, I do want to be clear that that stuff does hurt. <laughs> like This isn't a, a sermon that's out of touch with you know, reality. Like God doesn't need to lie to you about your hurt for you to accept what he's telling you about his kingdom here. This isn't a suspend reality, suspend the truth of what you feel completely because he's not able to handle the truth of what you feel with his truth. But when you get in line with his truth, he makes sense of what you're feeling and he mourns with you when you mourn and he wipes the tear away from your eye. And he heals your heart, truly. And so it's also important to know, again, that we're focusing on the goodness of God, the character of God. And so another scripture for you that we don't have to turn to, but Psalm eighty-nine, fourteen, talks about how God's throne is established on righteousness and justice. It's the foundations of his throne. So whereas we think if we put ourselves on the throne, we really know how to how to get righteousness from a situation by holding on to things. We know how to get justice. We want justice in our hearts. So we, you know, hold on to things and we feel like we just want the control that was taken from us, the control that was lost. But we're not in God's position to be able to do that righteously or with justice. And and so while you're crying for justice, struggling in tears or bitterness through what you've experienced, you may have even accused God of being slow to keep his promise of justice. You may have questioned his character to bring forth justice. But again, character of God, we have to understand how patient God is with those who have sinned against him greatly, just like in the parable. He was patient. The servant's begging for patience and mercy. And so we have to understand how patient he is with those who owe him a great debt or with you know, those he's patient with who do great injustices. So Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God's heart. The one who's done gross, gross sin, the one who's literally murdered, not just in their heart, but out openly. He wants that person to repent. The one who did the wrong. Some of you might have been the wrongdoer and you feel the weight of condemnation. He wants you to repent. He wants you to come to repentance and knowledge of you and not to perish and knowledge of him and not to perish. And so once we kind of receive this understanding of God's character, once we receive a revelation of how unjust our sin against God is, no matter what was done to us wrongly, no matter how legitimate it is, we will be moved to forgiveness And again, you're not doing this in your own strength. It's God 
who gives you strength to do this. It's God who convinces you, or it's the Holy Spirit who's convicting you of what's sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's convicting you of what the right thing to do is, what what the right belief is, even if it's hard to move in this direction because his hand is on it and he's with you. And so God, our master in heaven, our king, he gave us the example that we need to cry for mercy for those who have sinned against us first, rather than seeking for oftentimes, if we're being honest, the distorted justice that comes from our heart. And it's really coming from a desire for vengeance, that desire to regain control. Like James 1, 19 and 20 says, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, but we're encouraged to be slow to anger because human anger doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. It doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Our anger can't bring forth true justice or righteousness according to God's word. It's impossible. Because we do not have the limitless knowledge, the character, the sinlessness of God. Our capacity for justice and our anger is corrupted. It's defiled many times. And again, you can have a sense of justice that's in line with God's heart. But I'm talking about in general, when we put ourselves on the throne of what true justice is, what, you know, pure righteousness and things like that looks like. God's inviting us instead to trust in his leadership with how injustices are handled. So again, you're not letting go, but you're giving it up to the one who knows true justice, who has the power to actually bring true vengeance to you, who can actually make sure that that sin and the consequences you've suffered with from that sin is completely paid for whether in judgment or repentance. And so, yeah, so we just need to know that, that justice will be done because God is just. Again, these are, these are the thought processes you have to meditate on. You, you can hear me preach this once. This can go in your ear and out of the other. You have to make the choice, you and your seat, wherever you are, whatever you're thinking about while I'm preaching, you have to choose day after day to get what God says in his word in you, repeat it to yourself over and over because your lies won't stop. Those thoughts of bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, some of you with deep-seated stuff that's changed the way you literally perceive the world around you and interactions with others, that's not just going to change just because you heard a good sermon. You know, I'm sorry, like, thank God he's called me to preach and everything, but I don't have that type of power. But he does, the Holy Spirit in you, wants you day after day to think on him, to meditate on him, to think about the truth of his word, to pull down the strongholds through a journey with him through intimacy that's lived out. And so we don't, we don't even have to see, sorry, we don't have to even see the hypocrisy in how we treat others, um, even right after God has blessed us with so much, or we often don't even see, I'm sorry, we often don't even see the hypocrisy in how we treat others right after God blessed us with so much grace and mercy. And so Jesus explains the point as we're getting closer to wrapping up here, he explains the point in full um, in full in verse 35 when he says that we will also experience the anger of God's wrath and judgment if we fall into the trap of unforgiveness, hypocrisy, and lacking mercy toward others. And so if he didn't make it serious enough about what his heart is like, what his heart posture is like with the murder with, you know, all, you know, the way he calls the servant wicked and, you know, all of those things and brings up that key. All of those things, like all the things we've talked about today, grieving the Holy Spirit in those things. Jesus, again, explaining. And again, the context of the parable is someone who had received God's mercy already and then is choosing not to show mercy to others. Is that you, you who won't show mercy, who lives hypocritically and contrary to what I've done for you, the debt I've canceled in you, the word of the Lord is that you will experience his wrath, his judgment from partaking in those things that you've been forgiven of. And so we're commanded to forgive our brother and sister from our heart, again, from our heart. And so um, actually the last... um, Two, two verses, I'll just read them very quickly. James 2, 12 through 13, or 12 and 13. Okay, 
Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Again, this is written to the church. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does God desire? Mercy and not sacrifice. What triumphs over God's righteous judgment is his mercy, the richness of his mercy, greater than our debt, greater than that. That's what he's calling us to live in. The richness of his mercy, to display the richness of his mercy to other people, to love our neighbors by displaying the richness of his mercy, to to forgive from the richness of his mercy. And so, and this is James 2, 12 um, and 13. And uh, yeah. So in the kingdom of heaven, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's why we're here. That's why we're saved. His mercy triumphed over judgment. His judgment and mercy came together perfectly in Christ Jesus on the cross. So he was just and the justifier for us. And we receive and we abide in his mercy. His mercy is new every morning. And so we, we think we need to judge people first and pour out our punishment first so that people can feel the consequences of the pain that they caused us. Even if it's a quick argument with the spouse, even if it's a quick argument with a girlfriend, even if, whatever, you know, it doesn't have to be this deep seated stuff. I just want to lay that out here because sometimes, you know, people might think, oh, I don't really struggle with that. You do. <laughs> you do. <laughs> you have to make it personal for you and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you. In what ways have I been unforgiving? What anger have I been holding on to? Where does my bitterness come out? When did when do I notice I'm getting offended? When am I really the most hurt? What, how, is there something I'm holding on to that I brushed to the side so long I don't even think it's an issue anymore? And he's faithful. He'll bring it up and he'll deliver you from it. And so he's not calling you to judge first, to put judgment over mercy, pour out your version of punishment first and vengeance so they can feel what you felt, experience the same pain, and then the debt is paid because that's not what he did with us. And then, you know, we decide we'll pour out mercy maybe after, maybe. But he's trying to break that stronghold of unforgiveness off of us, that hypocrisy off of us, because it's grieving the Holy Spirit. It's hindering us from the fullness of what God has for us. It's keeping us from the purity of worship, from being able to offer our sacrifices at the altar to go to the place of prayer with him. And so when we're pulling down this stronghold with his help, with those spiritual weapons that we have of his word, prayer, God is replacing the lies about his character, his word, and his desires with his truth. And he wants us to understand that holding on to unforgiveness or bitterness cannot produce justice or righteousness. 